hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 49. Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2, and then 8 through 12. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And then he goes on to speak to a number of his sons before he gets to his fourth son, Judah, in verse 8. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choicest vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do give you great thanks and praise and ask for your blessing at this time as we turn to your scripture in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles. Uh, If you don't bring your Bibles, Jerry evidently has some that are across the hall over there, so you can find one over there. As always, it's going to be helpful if you have your scriptures ahead of you as we work our way through this passage together. Thanks, friend. About uh, two or three months ago, I was watching a movie, and I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I don't want you to think less of me, Uh, but I was watching this movie, and the hero gets shot. The hero early on, or I mean late in the movie, very towards the end, he gets shot, and as he's laying on the ground, he's bleeding out and all this kind of stuff, there's an eight-minute death scene. Now, you know what a death scene is, right? That's when somebody's dying on screen and they focus in on them and they take their last couple of breaths and then that's it. Okay, it usually goes, I checked a couple other ones, it usually goes somewhere around 15, 20 seconds. Sometimes they'll extend to about 40 seconds. Eight minutes on screen of this guy's death scene. And it just went on and on and on and lots of things. Now, if you've been reading with us in Genesis, if you've been following along through these last chapters, you know that we have something like that going on here with Jacob. We've been following Jacob since about the 25th chapter, and beginning in chapter 37, Jacob begins to die, at least on his own account. He keeps talking about how he's going to die. He tells Pharaoh he's going to die. He tells Joseph he's going to die. He tells Joseph's sons that he's going to die. He tells his sons that he's going to die. He's always talking about dying. As a matter of fact, this guy took about 40-some years to finally get around to dying. Well, here in chapter 49 of Genesis, he finally gets there. Uh, Chapter 49, by the time you get to the very end of the chapter, verse 33, which I'd encourage you to read, by the way, this entire chapter sometime at your leisure, down at the end of chapter 49, finally, Jacob gets around to dying. But beforehand... He has, he has been having these death scenes for the past 40 years, but he has another one. He has this death scene in chapter 49 where he gathers together all of his children. He gathers together his 12 sons. And note, if you have your Bibles, if you look again at verse 1, it says, he says to his sons, gather together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. He says, 
let me tell you what's going to happen to you in days to come. Now, this sounds very much so like a man on his deathbed. He's passing his final blessings, but because he's beloved by God, as we know, he's going to pass on some particular wisdom, some prophecy about what his sons are going to, what's going to happen to his sons. But that's clearly not what happens. Now, we can't go into this. I encourage you, again, you to read this chapter, to note this for yourself, because what takes place is for the next, uh, next set of verses, Jacob talks about what's going to happen to his sons, but really he's talking about something that's going to happen much later in history. He's talking about what's going to happen to his son's descendants. This is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 tribes of Israel all descending from one of these sons. And so when Jacob makes a prophecy and he says, Asher, this is going to happen to you, he's not really talking to the individual son that's standing in front of him. He's talking to all of, he's saying, this is what's going to happen to all of your descendants. This is what's going to happen in the future to you. And so this is particularly true when he gets to the fourth son, Judah. When he gets to the passage in which I read that we're going to look at together, he says, Judah, this is what's going to happen to you. But it's clear, and the New Testament picks up on this immensely, that he's not talking about Judah the person. And in some ways, he's not even talking about Judah the tribe, the people group. He is, but he's looking beyond that to the most famous descendant of Judah. Not King David, but King David's most famous descendant. He has in mind, of course, Jesus Christ. Some 2,000 years before Christ was born, Jacob, on his deathbed, looks at one of his sons and says, your descendant, this is what's going to happen. This is what your descendant is going to be like. Now, many of you guys know the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Jesus. It talks, it, it paints a picture, a portrait for us of who Jesus is going to be. But this is one of the earliest ones. This is one of the fullest ones. And I think that this is the one or one of the ones that should jump into our minds when we picture Jesus Christ as well. When we imagine ourselves coming before the Lord, here's my opening morning, and I, and I wake up, and I shower, I do all my stuff, and then I come before the Lord, and I imagine myself standing before him. What rings in my mind? What's the characteristics? What's the trait of that Jesus that stick out in my mind as I come before him? Well, this is what Jacob wants you to have in mind as you look at that descendant of Judah, who is yet to come for Jacob, but has come for us 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the line of the tribe of Judah. So if you look in your scriptures here in verse 8, he begins his, his prophecy for Judah, and Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now this has got to take the the group of them by, by surprise. You've got to remember here, we've got the 12 sons of Jacob gathered around, and one of those sons, remember, is Joseph. Joseph, the second most important person in all of Egypt. The guy way back in, verse, in chapter 37 where he said, look, all of you guys are going to bow down to me. Joseph is the one whom everyone is going to bow down to. And so it makes sense that as Jacob goes through and blesses all of his sons, when he gets to Joseph, he's going to say, hey, Joseph, you, just like they bowed down to your descendant, they're going to bow down to you. But he doesn't do that. Out of the blue, he says to the fourth son, to Judah, 
Everybody is going to bow down to you. Everybody is going to praise you. Now, that should come as a bit of a surprise if you read the book of Genesis, because Judah is a mixed lot. Sometimes he's on the good side of things. Sometimes he's on the bad side of things. I mean, he looks a lot like me. Sometimes I'm on the right side of things. Sometimes I'm on the wrong side of things. And Judah, nothing stands out for Judah. And yet Joseph here is not the one who gets Jacob's ultimate blessing, but Judah does, where it says all of the peoples will... Now, okay, so what are we talking about? We're obviously, Jacob here is seeing Judah and seeing through Judah, Judah's descendants, ultimately seeing Jesus Christ and says, what do I see first and foremost about Jesus Christ? That he is worthy to be adored. That's, that's what it means that, he, that all of the people, all the brothers, all of the Israelites, all of God's people will praise you. Why? Because it doesn't say what he's done. It was interesting. I was listening to some of the songs we were singing earlier. And oftentimes, the ones where we were singing, Jesus, we praise you for you have done great things. God, we praise you for you have done great things. And that's a great thing to do. We should do it. But that's not what we're told here. We're not told, hey, Judah's descendant, this great lion of the tribe of Judah, this great descendant, uh, ultimately, Jesus Christ, is, going to, is worthy of your praise because of all the wonderful things he's going to do. That's not what jo- Jacob says. Jacob simply looks at him and says, hey, this one is worthy to be praised. Why? Because not of what he has done, but because of who he is. That's the essence of that phrasing, the way that it's portrayed for us, is that Judah, you, because of who you are, because of who this person in the future is going to be, Jesus Christ, he is worthy to be adored. Notice the second line here for a second. The second line says, your hand shall be upon the neck of your enemies. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. And I thought a little bit about this, how to try to describe this for you. AJ, can you come up and give me a help hand up here for a second? Because the scriptures talk about um, the, often that your foot is on your enemies. And when your foot is on your enemies, what you're doing is you're conquering him. So I'm not going to make you do this. But if he laid on the ground and I put my foot on his neck, you know, there I'm expressing dominance over him, authority and stuff like that. This is the only time in Scripture where it's not said that the foot is on the enemy, neck of the enemy, but his hand is on the neck of your enemies. And I'm trying to think of what exactly that, that means and stuff like that. And I can't get away from when my kids were this age, and I kept putting my hand on their necks. You know, and, and what are you doing? You're, you're directing him. Turn with me. There you go. <laughs> Come on, work with me here. Uh, you're, you're turning with him. Putting your hand, thanks. Uh, putting your hand on the neck of your enemies here is a way of, of directing and guiding him in this way. And exactly what we just did here. Thanks, AJ. I appreciate that. So what you do here in this case is that this king, this one who is worthy to be praised, that Jesus looks out and sees, or that uh, Jacob looks out and sees, Jesus, he is worthy to be praised, but not just that. Notice that his hand is on the neck of his enemies, and you will bow down to him. You will bow down to him. Now, we associate that most clearly with worship, as well we should. When we bow down before our God, if we bow down to any idols and all that kind of stuff, we very clearly are worshiping them. Okay, so when it says here that you will bow down, that all the peoples will bow down to you, some of the implication is worship. But more than that, 
When you are bowing down to somebody, you are saying, I realize my humility before you. I realize my humbleness before you, and I'm going to express it in this way. Not my will, but yours be done. When you bow down before Jesus, you are expressing your humility. You are announcing, not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. Let me ask you something. When you picture yourself during the day coming before your Lord, Jesus, either in the morning devotion times or throughout the day as you are praying or in some spot of need, and you picture yourself coming before Jesus, do you picture him first and foremost as one who is worthy to be adored and worthy to be served? And if not, why not? Oh Lord God, I pray that you would make it so for me and that you would make it so for my brothers and sisters gathered here. We ask in Christ. Then Jacob goes on and looks in verse 9. Grab verse 9 for a second, and you'll see now the metaphor that they grab a hold of in the New Testament to apply this very text to Jesus Christ. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? What's the picture here? This is the picture of the, the, the Judah, Judah's descendant, Jesus Christ, is portrayed as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The New Testament refers to Jesus Christ in that very language. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, why a lion? This shouldn't surprise most of us because we have the sense, although it is surprising that 4,000 years ago, the lion was understood to be the sign of royalty, as it is for us largely today, the lion is the king of the jungle. And I look back on that phrase, where does the lion as the king of the jungle come from? And yes, indeed, it dates back further than 4,000 years. So when Jacob looks and sees Jesus 2,000 years in the future, he sees him as royalty, as majestic. Now, why is it that the lion is royalty and stuff like that? Here's a shameless plug for the zoo. Uh, forget the, forget the uh, uh, what's it called, TV and stuff like that. Uh, forget all that stuff and go to the zoo. And just watch the lions for a while. You really do see this, this power, this majesty, this majestic character within them. You can see why it is that lions are the king of the jungle. And when G Jacob sees Jesus, he associates him with royalty, with the king, <clears throat> excuse me, with all the majesty that is present there. But notice what it says here. Judah, you're the lion's cub. In other words, you're, the, you're, you're this rambunctious, energetic royalty. You are the king over all things. Uh, and you, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. You've stoked down. You've crouched over. Okay, so the picture that's trying to be painted here is that Jacob looks and sees uh, Jesus, pictures him as a lion, the mis just this majestic lion who's crouched over his prey. He's, he's guarding that which is his, and he's watching, watching, watching to see anything that comes along. Of course, one of the greatest things that, again, I commend to you tremendously, it is not, not a children's book. It is easily a book for you to read. How long has it been since you read C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? 
If you haven't read it for a long time, I urge you again to read it. And there's that great line in there where, where the heroine, uh, little Lucy, she finds out that, that the savior character is a lion. Aslan is this big lion. And she's terrified of the lion, as she should be terrified of the lion. And so she says to one of her friends, Mrs. Beaver, says, Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver looks at her and says, safe? He, he, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. And that's the picture that Jacob has here of Jesus Christ. He's not tame. Why do we have this picture of Jesus that he is some malleable, some some person that we can control some image of of what we want out of God where we can shape him and make him our own. Jesus Christ is not tame. He is majestic, he's a lion, and he's unpredictable, and he is wild, but he is good. When you imagine yourself standing before Jesus in the middle of the day, and you come before him, do you see him as majestic, as the ruler over all things, and yet completely unmanageable, completely wild, completely on his own, and yet he is good for you. If that's not what you picture, why not? Lord, my God, I lift up my brothers and sisters here at this time and myself. If I have too tame a view of you, if we have too tame a view of you, oh Lord, fix our thoughts, we pray. Make it so. And in verse 10, Jacob goes on and says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So he shifts the metaphor a little bit here. It's no longer the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we have a ruler, and that's the scepter. The the scepter is the staff, if you want to think about that. It's kind of like the ruling staff. Now, if we picture a ruler... The, the symbolism of a ruler for us is a person that wears a crown. If somebody's got a crown on their head, we go, aha, there's a ruler. Okay, 4,000 years ago, it wasn't the crown, it was the scepter. The, the king, the ruler, would always carry this scepter around with them. And so when Jacob looks and sees Jesus, the image that he has in his mind is, is not the suffering lamb, though that's great. It's not the glorious king who is comforting the children and begging them to come to him, although that is great. It is not the kindness and the love and the mercy of our Savior, although that is great. What Jacob looks and sees is he sees the one who the scepter shall not depart, and this is emphatic, the scepter shall not depart from him. In other words, this is an absolute and eternal ruler. When you look at Jesus, do you see this eternal ruler? Notice it says, nor shall the ruler staff from between his feet. Now, I've tried to picture this. I was going to grab the staff and see if I could walk around here with a stick between my feet. But I figured I'd fall all over the place. What's, what's being pictured here? This, the ruler, the symbol of my reign, the symbol of Jesus' reign, is between his feet, stuck between his feet always. Of course, the picture is, work it out a little bit and you see it. No matter where he goes, he is king. No matter where his feet take him, he is ruler 
over all things. He is the authority, the rule over your family. He is the one who rules over how you raise your kids. He's the one who rules over your parents as they age. He's the one who rules over your job, every aspect of your job. He's the one who rules over that frustrating relationship that you cannot seem to get away from. He's the one who rules over everything. The staff shall never depart from his hand, and it is between his feet everywhere Jesus goes. He rules. When you imagine yourself coming before the king of kings in the middle of the day when you are hurting and you want comfort from our Lord and you pray to him, do you come to him and see him as the absolute ruler in every aspect of your life who looks at you and says, that too is mine? If not, why not? Oh, Lord God, I do ask that in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, you would make that more of a reality. Make it so, I pray, Lord Jesus. And then in verse 11 and 12, you've got a, a weird image. You've got to kind of work this out a little bit. And the weird image is this. Binding his foal to a vine and his donkey to the choicest vine, he washed his garments in wine. Okay, so what we're picturing here is, again, you've got to kind of imagine this. Jacob's on his deathbed. He looks at Judah and says, hey, I see the descendant. I see somebody coming from you. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the lion in all these ways. He's going to be worthy of all your praise. He's going to be worthy to be served. And oh yeah, he's going to take his colt and he's going to bind it to the wine. Okay, what is all that? Uh, imagine the westerns when you're riding, uh, you know, the hero's riding on a horse and he comes up to the bar and he gets off the horse and he takes the reins and he wraps it around the hitching post that's standing there kind of thing. Okay, the picture here is that the king wraps the, hit, wraps the, the, the uh, what is it called, the rein, the reins of the donkey, he wraps it around a vine. Now, why would you do that? I didn't know until I found out that donkeys love to eat grapes, and they love to eat all the leaves of the vine. And if you tie a donkey to a grapevine, he'll clean it out in minutes' time. So why would the king do this kind of thing? Because there is such abundant bounty and wealth in the kingdom of our Lord that it so overflows in every possible way that the king is able just to tie up even the donkey to a vine and let the donkey have a heyday there of a meal. Why? Because there is so much here that you can do anything with it. You can even allow the donkeys to eat all of the choicest vine. Now, the, the, again, you kind of have to make the connection here that growing vines, growing, the, it, it takes a lot of peace in the land, it takes a lot of time, it, it takes a lot of effort. So a great big crop yield is, demonstrates the bounty that is poured out into the land. And here, this Judah, the king of kings, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah that Jacob sees in the future, he sees him as part of a kingdom that is so overflowing with vines that you can let the animals eat them all. And not only that, but that it's so plentiful that you can treat the wine, you can treat the grape juice like water. 
you can wash your garments in it. Now, I don't, that, you're not supposed to get the imagery here of dyeing the colors or anything like that. What you're supposed to get the image of is there's so much bounty, there's so much wine, there's so much blessing that you can, you can treat it like water. Is it any surprise that the first miracle Jesus did was changing water into wine? Is it any surprise that when the king of kings, who Jacob sees, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who finally comes to this land, that he brings with him this overflowing bounty that you cannot control. It is so great that it overflows into every area. You can wash your clothes in it. There's so much blessing. Now, when you picture yourself coming before the king of kings, when you're hurting and you come before Jesus for comfort and love. Is that the Lord that is in your mind? The God who is so bountiful that he can't wait to give it to you. He can't wait to share it with you. And if not, why not? Oh Lord God, again, in my life, and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. Make it so. Make it so, Lord, we pray. The passage that Jerry read earlier from Revelation chapter 1, the picture there is of John, the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, who he hasn't seen in 60 years. And when he turns around to look at him, who does he see? face shining in all its brilliance, a powerful sword coming out of its mouth, feet anchored in the ground, a voice like a rush of waters. He sees this powerful, majestic, overwhelming ruler. That's what Jacob wants us to see. Do we see the comfort and love and nurture and grace? Do we see the cross? Of course we do. But we also see the same vision that Jacob himself did of this majestic lion of the tribe of Judah that is worthy to be served, that is worthy to be praised, that is uncontrollable and unmanageable, but yet who is good in every aspect. A king who is bountiful in his blessings and who claims every area of your life. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, I so confess my own failure to approach you each and every day exactly this way. All too often, Lord, I approach you just in my own mind as who I want you to be, not how you have portrayed yourself to be in your scriptures. Lord, I know that you have abundant blessings. I want, to, I want us to have more confidence in the fact that you desire to pour them out upon us. Lord, I know that you are sovereign ruler over every area of our lives. I want us to have more confidence that you reach out and claim everything as your own. Lord, I know that you are worthy to be praised and therefore you are worthy to be served. Lord, help us to realize that and to orient our lives around that. For Lord, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are majestic, 
and ruling in every way. And we give you thanks and praise for the bounty gifts that you pour out upon us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask. Amen.